This is Jessica. This is Kelly, the Chasing Brighter podcast. In today's podcast, we interviewed our cousin Sophia. She is amazing. Kelly, what do you think of of today's interview? Um, Yeah, she's awesome. I admire her so much. I find her so interesting. um, Just how she got to where she is. Um, Not only what she's gone through in terms of her childhood, but just like this amazing woman who is crazy resilient, um, faced a lot of challenges and just killing it in the world. Um, I think she's an amazing mom. We've had, um, you know, we grew up with her. We spent vacations, childhood vacations together. And as we've gotten older, we had a great um, opportunity to even have a family vacation with all of our spouses and kids. And we had a fantastic time. And um, I, Sophia's parenting is awesome. She's, um, you know, steadfast, always very positive um, and um, just an amazing woman. Yeah, she has amazing patience. I don't think I've ever seen her lose her temper with her children. And she's one of those moms that just always has the words, you know, when Absolutely. Her kids were tiny, she'd get down and like talk to them and, ex- you know, explain and give them choices. And that's awesome. And like you said, we grew up together. So Sophia was a year younger than me in school. And then her, her older sister, Angie, was my age. And Angie and I were really close. And I think... Um, we've, our moms are sisters, so our mom is Sophia's mother, sister, and so I think uh, those were some of the closest cousins that we were. Um, so Sophia now is a business owner. She also works as a clinic, as a nurse practitioner in a functional medical clinic. She went to graduate school. Um, she had a lot of trauma in childhood and a year ago found out about a, um, you know, a, an aggressive form of breast cancer with which thank goodness she is in remission, um, cancer free at this time. And so I just want, this interview does get intense. I want to let our listeners know that this could be triggering for those. It does get graphic and explicit when we are addressing molestation. And so if that's something that would be triggering for you, this this might not be um, one that would be safe for you to listen to. Yeah, it was definitely heavy, Jess. And you know me and my emotional neglect challenges, um, you know, having that conversation was definitely, um, it was tough to hear, especially for somebody you care about a lot and to know um, some of what they've gone through. Um, isn't something that you want anybody to experience, let alone somebody who you um, know and love. Yeah. And I think that's where, like you had said, the trauma therapist took over, but it is, it's like, gosh, I've been, I mean, I started volunteering and and social working in like 1999, right? And so there are things that, you know, I don't want to say I'm desensitized to, but that it's like, oh yeah, of course, right? I feel like for, for sure, I think everyone was sexually assaulted and sexually abused in some way. I really do. And then, right, so all of those things are just like, yeah, of course that happened. I could totally see that. But I know for someone that's not in the work and not in the thick of it, um, you know, that can be um, hard to hear, like you said, especially if it's someone that you really care about. But that's a tiny piece of this amazing interview. Absolutely. Sophia, who's so like, we're obsessed with longevity and functional medicine. And she's so smart about how to 
optimize your health. And she's so great at talking about parenting and positivity and her own journey to um, be her best self. It's, it's, it's amazing. She is tirelessly seeking knowledge. Um, she's very curious about the world that we live in. And, um, you know, she's always somebody who has a lot of great insights on all kinds of things. Yeah, so, so here it is, our interview with Sophia Lyon. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Chasing Brighter. Today, Kelly and I are interviewing our cousin, Sophia Lyon. She is a functional nurse practitioner for Prairie Health and Wellness, which is a functional medical clinic in Wichita, Kansas. Thank you so much, Sophia, for joining us today. We're super excited to get into this interview today. Well, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So I know that you are a nurse practitioner. I think a lot of people understand that a nurse practitioner is someone that not only has their bachelor's degree, but also goes on to graduate school. Um, but tell me a little bit more about what functional medicine is. Tell me, tell me all about that. So functional medicine is uh, essentially asking why patients have specific symptoms. So in traditional medicine, you know, we learn how to treat and manage medical conditions. And in functional medicine, we treat and manage the same conditions, but we try to get further upstream to discover why the patient is experiencing those symptoms. And if there are anything, um, whether it's lifestyle changes, um, dietary, nutrition, um, anything that we can do to actually help get far enough away from the disease process that we can potentially reverse it. And how do you think that differs from, you know, kind of traditional Western medicine? So I think the example that's the easiest to appreciate functional medicine would be looking at type two diabetes. Uh, it's, you know, a up and coming concern, lots of patients all across, you know, the United States and even in the world. Um, the prevalence, I think, is going to be it's one in three people will have type two diabetes at some point in their life. So with traditional medicine, you know, we put patients on medications to help with the uh, high glucose, bringing glucose down. There are lots of different types of medications. Um, with functional medicine, we try to help our patients understand why this is happening to them. And genetics may play a role, but it's usually a pretty small part of the puzzle. Most of what contributes to the disease process is through what we would consider to be epigenetics or lifestyle choices and how those lifestyle choices impact our genes. So for example, um, with a patient who may have type two diabetes, a brand new diagnosis, maybe their mom and dad have it, maybe even grandparents have it. And, you know, maybe they feel like, you know, this is just the way they were made and this is just part of their DNA or their genetics. They're just um, predisposed to have type two diabetes. And we try to help them appreciate um, really understanding metabolics and how glucose and insulin act together, how the food choices that we make impact our glucose levels. Um, and in many cases, patients who come to us on medications, if they're motivated for change and we can help uh, them understand why this is happening in their lifestyle and why these changes are important. And uh, not just reversing the insulin resistance or type two diabetes, but also preventing 
additional uh, illnesses or disease processes that can result from having mismanaged uh, blood glucose. So I think to summarize the way I understand it, and I do have a little bit of a, I'm going to say I have a little bit of a negative view of Western, Western medicine anyway, but like that, if I went to just a traditional MD, they would say, oh, you have type two diabetes. These are all the pills you need to take for it. But if I went to a functional practice, they would say, okay, this is what you have. This is how we manage it. But also we can explore, right, why you have it. And we can also look at reversing it. So kind of the why factor as well. And also lifestyle changes, not just medically managing it, medicinally, pharmaceutically managing it, but looking at lifestyle changes as well. Yeah. And I would say even um, to go a step further, catching it before it is type two diabetes, you know, when we're screening up patients um, and in a traditional office, they're going to look at glucose levels and glucose has to reach a certain number before you are considered to have type two diabetes. Well, we're looking at insulin and we screen all of our patients in a annual wellness panel, looking at insulin levels because insulin is going to come up before your glucose. So really we're trying to prevent disease. We're catching it before it becomes, um, you know, what we would consider to be a chronic illness. So we're screening sooner. We're uh, looking at different things. And then as you stated, in addition to helping manage and treat the condition, really trying to um, appreciate all of the factors and all of the choices that you make, um, how they directly impact your health. So do you think that um, functional medicine, like say somebody has like an, uh, a general practitioner or an internist that they work with and they do their annual exams or whatnot, um, do you see a functional medicine path replacing that or how do they work together? And that's a great question. So not all functional practitioners are set up the same. So at Prairie Health and Wellness, we are a family practice. So we see patients as, I mean, we manage and treat everything that they would at a family practice physician. So we manage um, their labs, we do their uh, annual exams, we do their screening, um, we send them out for colonoscopies and mammograms, just like a traditional office would, but we also help them appreciate how much they can do with their lifestyle. And not just diet and exercise like we learned so much about, but mental health and sleeping and um, connection and love and support with others. So really focusing on what we consider to be the pillars of health, um, which would be sleep and movement and nutrition and stress management. Um, also uh, love and connection. So all of those areas, but in some functional clinics, they, they will focus on the lifestyle piece, but still have you seeing your primary care or your traditional doctor um, to manage, you know, if you had a upper respiratory infection or a sore throat, or you had an ear infection, you would go to a little clinic or you would go to, um, you know, your primary care and then see the functional therapist for, or functional uh, provider for more detailed lifestyle guidance or health coaching. I would say, I want to explain why I say I have a negative view of Western medicine, right? So, so first, when you talk about all of those pillars of care, 
to me in the mental health field, those are all the strategies that we utilize to heal from trauma, right? Or to heal with depression and anxiety. But I've had so many clients come in presenting, let's say with depression, and then they go to a doctor and the doctor just writes a script for psychotropic medication without looking at the why, without doing blood panels. And so I've had clients who are like, I'm really worried. I'm tired all the time. And I'm like, we need to rule out the medical. And if I'm able to get them to a, pra- a, a practitioner, either a functional medical practice or a practitioner who looks at the whole picture, we can find out, hey, they have a vitamin D deficiency hey, they're deficient in B12. So I just, I, it's just been my experience so much through my clients that people are going and no one's giving them the why, right? They're just like giving them a pill and not trying to help them look at the big picture. And there are some deficiencies, some vitamin deficiencies, some uh, biological components that can present like a mental health issue um, if they're not treated. So anyways, that was just kind of explaining why. Well, and I love that you bring that up because there, I feel like in here in the United States, especially we have um, separated every aspect of our health. You go to your cardiologist for your heart management, you go to mental health or a therapist to help you work on that side of things. You go to, um, you know, the oncology to help manage your cancer. And really our whole goal is to try to bring as as much of it under the same roof as possible. Um, and even in our practice, we're working with local therapists and trying to bring mental health into our clinic because you, you can't really separate it out. Our, your mental wellness and your physical health are directly connected. Uh, so when we're, when we're focusing on, you know, you were saying, hey, those are the same contexts we use. And we appreciate that. And we feel like it's such a disservice to our patients when we have them going in all these different directions, seeing multiple providers who aren't collaborating, they're not checking in with each other. So even under our own roof, we have chiropractors, we have naturopathic physicians, um, medical doctor, we have two um, doctors of osteopathic medicine, we have family practice, women's health, pediatrics. So we have specialists that are all coming together and all working on additional training and support um, we're hoping within uh, the next year, so by 2023, to have mental health also on board. Right now, um, we just have a referral process where we work very closely with our mental health care providers. And, you know, even our newest adventure with, um, you know, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, where we as the providers will manage those prescriptions and, um, you know, they'll be able to conduct uh, those sessions with their therapist. So we're really excited for the opportunity for clinics like this um, to continue to grow. And even just the awareness that your medical doctor or who you see when you're sick, uh, there's so much more potential and there are a lot of options and, um, you know, you really can choose. How have you seen... um... How have you seen things change with COVID? Like, do you notice like your clients are different or needs are different? Yeah, I would say, um, so again, going to mental health. So I'll, I'll just start with fear. I think that with COVID, there was a lot of decision-making based on fear And for our patients, um, you know, who may have been misinformed or, um, gosh, this is such a heavy, (laughs) when you're asking about COVID. 
So what my brain wants to do is pause and say, first of all, I wish during the whole COVID situation, we could have all thought more critically and less politically. You know, when we think about some of the decisions that were made based on um, how we were going to manage, um, you know, shutdowns or people not being able to go to work or um, even, you know, people's livelihood, their ability to work or, uh, you know, make money to provide for their families was impacted whether or not they would get a medical procedure like a vaccination. And I feel like there was... Um, so much fear of, you know, fear of, you know, what happens if my loved one gets this illness and dies, fear of what if I don't get this vaccination and I lose my job, um, fear, what are other people going to think if we don't um, follow the same uh, decision making as our mm -hmm. peers. Um, so I feel like that fear, but also isolation, you know, we, mm -hmm. um, we are very social beings and to be isolated and disconnected as a population, um, especially when I think about our kids who had to do, you know, um, computer school from home where a lot of them, their, you know, their ability to connect and meaningful, loving relationships was just altered. Like if parents were still out of the home working and kids were left, I think, unsupervised and attended in front of a computer screen for a good bulk of the day. I just, there, there are so many things that I think we could have done better um, to keep balance. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think even with conversation about COVID, um, you know, you found people so opinionated in one direction or another and I felt that if we all just kind of took a step back, um, instead of, you know, focusing on our beliefs and our fears and um, even, you know, what we're reading or seeing or hearing and just focused on the basics, you know, connecting with others, you know, are we loving and being kind yes, and yeah. supporting one another and we can disagree and that's okay. Right. I feel like, um, yeah, covid not just from a medical standpoint, you know, medical doctors were not in agreement on a lot of things. It was very difficult to manage, I think, patient do, expectations. Do you see, um, I guess, like, even during COVID with the shutdown and everything, like you're saying, loss of that personal connection, that isolation, um, you know, was it a time where people were more introspective in some ways, where maybe they were seeking help in different ways than they were before? Or like, did your client base or patient base change at all? In that so way? I would say that our patient population is pretty specific. Uh, we don't accept insurance. Okay. Uh, we're not in network for anyone. Our patients are seeking us out. So these are patients who usually are very uh, knowledgeable about mm -hmm. options with healthcare. These are patients who usually, um, you know, are more proactive with their health. Uh, instead of being reactive. So the, our patient population, and even in our patient population, you know, you still have some variance over comfort levels with some things, but most of our patients, so we were a medical office seeing patients with even positive for COVID, right? So we had patients who would come in with acute illness. We had patients, um, you know, we have an IV suite where we help, um, you know, support for patients with nutritional IVs, and some of them are immunocompromised or in a cancering process. So our whole goal was to try to 
protect as much of our patient population as we could without creating too much restriction or barriers. Um, you know, we wanted them to see our, our faces and our smiles. Um, I think about my son, uh, Ozzy, he was nine at the time, but he drew a little mask and he said, you know, mom, it's not wrong to smile. He's like, we, we took away everybody's smiles and, you know, just not even getting to see a friendly greeting or a smile. But uh, back to the question of, you know, did our patient population change? No, we were stable. In fact, we were growing so much at the end of 2020, early 2021, we had to put a hold or freeze on new patients. Mm. We just, until we could hire new providers to help accommodate them, we actually had to set, um, we had a one-year waiting list that we just this past two months started uh, getting through so that we could welcome new patients into the clinic. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I would say um, there's a lot of people who are wanting a better alternative for managing their overall well-being. So um, I know we didn't uh, talk too much in the intro, but you're also a a wife, a mother of three, still a a small business owner as well, correct? Yes. Yes. So you're an entrepreneur. So you're a girl, you're a girl boss and managing all, you know, all of this, right? And then recently, was it fall fall, summer, summer, 2021, finding out that you yourself had a cancer diagnosis. Yes. So, um, I have three children and they are currently, um, 12 and a half, almost 11 and nine and a half. Um, last spring, it would have, well, it would have been May of last year. I discovered a lump in my breast, uh, breast cancer diagnosis was confirmed, um, early May and June 10th of this year will be one year, uh, from my mastectomy. And how was that? And so how, how has that journey been? There's the fear word again. I feel like we have learned so much fear around a cancer diagnosis. And for me to be so ingrained in functional medicine and to appreciate that most chronic diseases and, and even cancer, there it's a metabolic syndrome, right? That starts from a cellular level. There's so many things that can contribute to it. There are so many things that we still have the ability to manage and own during the diagnoses. I refused um, to have the victim card that, oh my gosh, how could this happen to me? Versus seeing, wow, there's so much that I can do to empower myself with knowledge, with comfort with love, um, and with options. So I had a traditional oncologist here in Wichita, Kansas, and I saw a functional oncologist in Overland park in Kansas. And together, um, I was very open with both of them that I was seeing both types of physicians. I ended up having to get chemotherapy, which I didn't necessarily want, but because I was pairing it up with some functional treatments like mistletoe injections and IV vitamin C. Uh, I was, I mean, I was shocked at how well I did with it. No nausea. I didn't have any limitations. I think I may have had four or five missed work days from migraines. Um, but otherwise I think, you know, the more empowered we are with knowledge, the less fearful we are. Right. So when I had the opportunity to go see a 
a FABNOME or functional, uh, the functional board of naturopathic oncology, um, this provider, and to be able to do both, not thinking that I had to choose one path or another to be able to combine them to get myself um, the best opportunity to survive and thrive, right? Not just come out of it with, you know, being with the goal to be cancer free, but how can I change my health? Uh, and not just my physical health, but my mental health so that I can um, come out of this a better person. Looking at your life, how do you think your childhood, the way you were raised, impacted the ability to look at it through that lens? So um, my mom was a single mom. And uh, there were five of us girls that she raised and I watched her work, you know, two and three jobs at a time to help support us. Um, we were raised that you, I mean, if you wanted it, you worked hard and you made it happen. Um, you know, we didn't have money growing up, obviously. Um, it was hard to make ends meet. I mean, I remember times where we would wear holes in our shoes and we'd have to wait until the next payday to be able to get a new pair of shoes because we only had one pair. So watching my mom um, struggle and learning very early on that it doesn't matter what hand you're dealt, you very much have an opportunity to make a change as long as you're willing to work. Um, and I think, you know, we use that even in our healthcare model with functional medicine, you know, we can educate and tell people all these wonderful options, but if you're not willing to do the work, you know, it's, you limit yourself. So I feel like um, watching her struggle to take care of all five of us, uh, knowing that if I wanted something, I couldn't rely on my mom to buy it for me or get it for me. I started babysitting when I was nine years old, started making money um, when all through high school while my friends would be, um, you know, doing extracurricular activities or traveling or um, partying or having fun on the weekends. I was, I was babysitting. I had multiple families I babysat for. I was able to save up and buy my own car. I was able to pay for my own, um, you know, graduation trip. I was, I just learned work ethic from a very early age. And how did that even with going through this, um, like cancer diagnosis, like how did that keep you going? And like, how are you today too? I guess that's two questions. Yeah. So um, today I'm, I'm good. I'm like, I'm right at this one year mark. Um, amazed at how much happened in one year, like to look back at it. It's like a little, it feels like a little blip on a radar. Like, Oh man, gosh, that was, Oh yeah. That was our, that was the cancer awesome. diagnosis day. Yeah. Oh, that was my mastectomy day. Um, the process in and of itself, um, you have, I feel like you have two choices. You either let it take you down or you stand up and say, I'm bigger than this. And I knew I was bigger than that. Um, so that was the first question, how I am today. I'm great. And I want to empower other people when they get a diagnosis of cancer, regardless of what form of cancer, or even the prognosis to just appreciate that there's so much more to you as a human being than that one diagnosis. And uh, there's so much that we can do to overcome some of those obstacles. Uh, and I'm one of those people who naturally have just been um, very optimistic my whole life. You know, the glass is always half full. Life is just beautiful and wonderful. It's what you make of it. Um, 
poisoned by optimism. Uh, but when it comes to something like a cancer diagnosis, for me, it made me assess, well, why is there so much fear around it? Well, is it death? Okay, well, we're all going to die. No one's getting out of here alive. Um, being a mother of three, what I would consider to be young children, you know, they were 11, uh, 10, and just turning nine. Um, it was, have I empowered them enough with the characteristics and the skills that they need to survive? And I lived so much as a parent in fear, uh, probably from my own past trauma and trying to overcorrect the parenting I wish I would have had you know, protecting them and don't let them get hurt and don't let them do these things. And uh, through this journey, realizing that they are so much more capable than I ever gave them credit for. So focusing on their capabilities versus um, their the opportunities for an entry. So this is an opportunity to learn and grow and let them stumble and let them fail um, because it will make them stronger in the end. So just reassessing what is my purpose? And I think it's to make sure that my three little human beings turn out to be respectful and kind and honest and responsible um, and capable. So do you think, am I hearing that correctly? Tell me if I'm wrong. Like, do you think that maybe what you're saying is you were a little bit of a, a helicopter parent and that had you reassess like maybe I need to let them fail more or, or is that? So not so much a helicopter parent. And I'm not I would saying call that, a, but I don't think you are, by the way. I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> I would say a lawnmower parent, okay. <laughs> paving the path for them to make life as easy as I could for them. And I feel like there's a difference. Like helicopter parents are, um, you know, almost not very unintentionally kind of preventing their kids from doing quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Whereas I was, oh, we can do it, but let me make this really easy for you. You know, I'll do all these things and bring this awareness and um, empower you with all these tools and resources so that it's really, really easy for you to do these things. And learning um, that that's not, I mean, I don't want to say any type of parenting is bad parenting. They all have pros, they all have cons. But what I learned in my own journey is that, wow, if I died today, I would be so disappointed in how underprepared my children are. And just shifting um, what I thought I was doing to guide them with, um, you know, love and knowledge more to guide them with awareness and experiences. That's interesting. And it's, it's very profound. Um, you know, I think the hard part about being a parent is that it's like, we've never done it before. Right. And so it's like, you're learning, um, you're kind of learning as you go. Um, and I think it's fair for, for all of us to kind of go easy on ourselves. Right. Um, when we go through stuff and, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I definitely find myself so often just telling people like, look, I don't judge, you know, cause everyone has their own way of parenting and it is, um, it's easy to be critical of maybe the work that we're doing, but it's so hard to like, it, it's so easy for me to be critical of what I'm doing. I don't even have time to tell, to think about, you know, sometimes how other people are, are doing it. Yeah. I, I joke, um, I have had. 39 employers uh, in my 41 years and parenting of all the jobs that I've had, 
is by far the, the, the most challenging and the most rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. That's hard. I, yeah, I think, I think that's tough. I, I loved what you said when, when you said, you know, have I empowered them to survive without me? Like what a critical question. And I think about that. I don't know. I think I'm reading like, so I'm an insane reader. I read all the time. I think I've been reading too many books (laughs) where the mother dies (laughs) and then, you know, the whole family falls apart. Right. So it has me thinking about that, like what you're saying, right. Okay. How can I set everyone up that, you know, like you, like you're saying, we're all going to die. I don't know when, but it's going to happen. How can I set everybody up to be independent and empowered that everyone will be okay. And that's right. That's the, the, the concern. If you're raising your children in a way, I'm speaking of myself, right. Where you're in everything, right. Then how are they going to know what to do if you're not right there? Because you're always, you know, right there. And so I love this lawnmower situation because I'm thinking also about, you know, free range parenting and helicopter parenting. So I'm imagining, right, like this field. <laughs> and I know what you're saying, like lawnmower parenting, because you're like, okay, well, you can play on the field, but first let me run out there. I'll make sure there are no hypodermic needles. I'll just clean everything up, pick everything. Then you can go. I'll be over here. <laughs> yeah. That's so kind of figuring out how you're going to, how you're letting them into the wild, right? How, how you're doing that. And I, I do think it's hard. Sometimes I'm surprised at my ability to let my kids fail. Cause I, I know that's important, right? What we're all talking about. And I think we've said that before. I know you alluded to, to, to trauma, Sophia, and I know Kelly and I have talked about our own trauma, um, but you know, you can't become strong, you can't become resilient, right? You can't become wise without having to experience, um, you know, disappointment and failure and all of those things. Um, and so, you know, for our children to, to have the characteristics we want, they will have to experience it. But, you know, it's hard sometimes to witness it. Yeah. And I come back to the word balance. I mean, you can't, there's a balance between that. There are times where it's appropriate to help them and to guide them. And there are other times where you really, I had to have a better awareness of scaling back. Um, And, you know, you're going to, every kid is different. They all, all three of mine respond differently to the same parenting uh, style and situation. I have to adjust myself to them. Uh, all the time and really being so transparent and vulnerable, even with your kids. Uh, I feel like, you know, I grew up where it was like this leadership of I'm the mom, you do it. You say, you know, this is the way it is. And you don't question your elders. Um, And part of me at times, I mean, I want my 12 and a half year old daughter to realize, Hey, this is really hard for me. I'm going to tell you what my goal is with this conversation. I uh, for example, we had to take away, so she got a phone. I'm going to maybe get into the weeds for a second, but she got a cell phone. She started middle school and I needed her to have a communication opportunity to communicate with us because we don't have a home phone, right? So she's going to be riding a bus when she gets home and checking in. Um, but text messaging with peers in middle school is just a whole new uh, uncharted territory for me. Like, what do we do with this constant, I call them 
dings against their nervous system, right? <laughs> like a little being in there. Oh gosh, so-and-so, you know, their little nervous systems are all riled up. And um, it came to a point where I had to take away text messaging. In fact, we took away the phone completely, you know, and um, we left it at home. You know, if you need us, you can call your parents, but you don't get to take the phone to school anymore. You don't get the phone. And she was so upset about it. And then I just had to be transparent. Look, I don't know how to manage how, you know, middle schoolers communicate with one another. This constant communication via text messaging where you have to read into things and try to interpret what your friends are saying. I don't know how to manage that. So for me, we're just going to take a break from it. I want you to help me. If you, if you think of a way that you can uh, manage better communication with your friends, I mean, just really getting her involved in that thought process of, I don't know what I'm doing. This is super uncharted territory. My whole goal is to just protect you from this emotional burden of wondering what that text message meant and so many kids text messaging in. So um, she was grateful to be able to come up with a solution. What if I just do phone calls? That way I can talk to them and it's not text messaging. And if they text, I won't answer it. So really having her involved in that process, to me, that's a growth opportunity for her and I both. Yeah, I think that's really great. I think though, because I think the issue is to me, what I would say is anxiety, right? It, this whole, a lot of the, the phone stuff is impulsive. Like for Wes, it's more like, um, he, he's on it like all the time. Right. So he gets it taken away all the time as well. Um, he doesn't have the text message situation cause boys don't really talk that much, um, on there, but it's the feeling like they have to be connected to their friends all the time. And like, that's their one path of doing it. And I don't like the, the weight that it gives them. Like it's too heavy when it things upset them. And like you're saying, it's stuff that it's like, that's emotional. That's wasteful emotional energy in my book. Right. It's like, if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have that heavy feeling and you would still be able to be with your friends. And it's like trying to find a balance with kids. Um, so that's like, it took me long, long enough to realize that I struggled with my own anxiety. And now that I know what that is and I know how that feels, it's like, I don't want them to experience that any earlier than, than they have to. So, um, how do you think, uh, your, your childhood, you talk about the dictatorship, right? How do you think that, um, you know, impacted you in adolescence, right? Because you had, so we had, Kelly and I had where our dad thought he was a dictator, but like we would, you know, let's say we're grounded. And then the next day we would be like, we're going to our friend's house. Our parents lacked follow through, you know? So I don't think, I, I really think Kelly and I, we, we probably, we could have gotten away with a lot. I feel like we, there was, um, I don't know, that was the eighties and nineties, right? Like not a lot of oversight. <laughs> I don't know How about for you with a dictatorship, but also a mom working so many jobs, whereas the, there aren't, there aren't the eyes on, on the kids. She wasn't right? there. Yeah. yeah. My mom wasn't there. She was working. She was always at work and she worked nights. So she would sleep during the day while we were at school. We would maybe get to have dinner with her once or twice a week, before, you know, if it timed out just right. Um, but it, there was when I so it was you you live under my roof. This, these are my rules. There wasn't we weren't going to have a conversation about some. Let's talk through this. How does this make you feel? No, there was none of that. 
But um, I found that babysitting outlet where I could control the environment, right? Where I was the one who was in charge. I was the one taking care of um, other people's children and playing and loving and trying to, um, you know, just have that innocence a little bit longer, I guess, just being a kid myself, um, you know, with other, you know, responsibilities, but being out of the home so much. I mean, there were summers that I may have slept in my own house, you know, two or three nights a week because I would be doing overnights with other people's children. So I don't know. I, I guess I escaped it. Disassociation. Get out of there. Yeah. You know, that's so interesting. So we had interviewed my friend, Teresa, and she's one, one of eight yeah. kids and she's seven of eight and that's what she did babysitting. We were like, what did you do? And was so, um, I, I, I think she was, was nine when the parents got the divorce, right? So single mom. So it was like, she got her emotional needs met through the neighborhood families that she babysat for. So she would develop relationships with the moms and kind of get a love and attention there a little bit. And the children, children are so awesome. Like the littlest thing can bring them joy to just sit and color with them or to play hide and go seek or to play shoots and ladder for the 20th time in the same day. They're just joyful over the littlest things. And for me, that was a big, that was a reward system. You would go and you could play with these kids and um, invest so much time and love. And it really was like another family. Can you imagine your nine-year-olds managing a household? No, caring not at all. Children and putting them to bed and making them meals. And <laughs> no, there's been too much lawn mowing over on this <laughs> side. <laughs> and but it's it's like right. So then thinking, oh my gosh, you are so young, right? But that lesson of like, if you want it, you got to get it yourself. So you were just out there getting it. I mean, yes, that was fun, but you were making money. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, and so here's, what's crazy is, you know, people would ask, well, what would you do with money as a nine-year-old? Well, I told you there were times where I couldn't, I would have to wear holes in my shoes until I, my mom had a payday when I was really young. So when I was, by the time I was like nine and 10, um, the awareness of like brands and nice things and, um, like even, uh, you know, like Nike tennis shoes or like a, people were wearing those like jogging suits. And I thought, oh man, I'd like to have one of those. So I would use my babysitting money to buy clothes or shoes um, or things that, you know, I saw my friends having that I wanted. Trying to keep up with the Joneses. Where were you in the dynamics with your sisters, with your four sisters? So I'm uh, four of five and there were... um, two older sisters. So, um, from Belinda to Jenny, so from the oldest to the youngest, there are 10, they're 10 years. And so Belinda and Cicely were a couple of years apart. And then there were maybe a three or four year gap. And then Angie, Jenny, and I, so the three young ones, um, are the ones that I pretty much grew up with. Uh, Cicely and Belinda were working, uh, out of, you know, after school when they were in middle school and high school. So they were not around very much. Um, but Angie and Jenny and I, um, 
were unsupervised. So I was super responsible, babysitting, making money, saving up, going to buy a car when I am old enough to drive. Um, they were more uh, opportunists taking advantage of lack of chaperoning and supervision. Yeah. So they, they did a lot of uh, partying, right? drinking, smoking, experimenting with other um, drugs pretty early, pretty young, like especially through high school, but even in middle school. So your mom and the two oldest sisters were all out, you know, working. Yeah. yeah. Out of the house working. In fact, my oldest sister, she moved out when, I mean, she was eight and a half years older than I was. So even when I was, you know, in grade school, old enough to remember fourth and fifth grade, she had moved out already. Why do you think you weren't doing those things? Oh gosh, I don't know. I too many after school specials. I believed in Dare, <laughs> the Kids Against Drugs program. <laughs> this is your brain on drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was scared to death to try anything like that. Yeah. You remember the nineties commercial where they would fry an egg yeah. on the concrete? This, this is, is your drugs. brain on this drugs. Is your brain on drugs, yeah. Ingrained so deeply in my soul, like, oh my gosh, that is gonna kill my brain. I cannot do that. There was never try. that thing where remember because even at the time where i was like if you drink alcohol it's it kills brain cells and i just remember being like why are mom and dad drinking all the time like it's killing all the brain cells i know i'm like this is pretty crazy and people do pretty crazy things when they're on alcohol like even my father he was an alcoholic and so the shittiest things that ever happened to me there was alcohol involved so even just the smell of it would make me sick Mm. like i didn't i didn't want to have anything to do with it you how so so your parents they were married until how old were you when the divorce so I know this is terrible but I joke that I'm the I'm the only one of the five kids that wasn't born a bastard so (laughs) I know that my my parents my parents the three younger ones we had the same dad and my mom was pregnant with Angie before they got married um, I'm 22 months younger than she is. So I was conceived and born in wedlock, um, but she was pregnant with my youngest one when they were divorced. Okay. So you were, were you even two when they were divorced? I mean, do you remember? No, no, no I wouldn't have been two because uh, my youngest sister and I are only 18 months apart. So, and she was, I mean, I'm guessing pretty early pregnant when they were divorced. And then did you go visit regularly for your dad so, for how long? Yeah, we had regular weekend visits um, until I was eight years old, which is when he went to prison. We want to remind our listeners that the following content may be triggering and difficult to hear. We encourage you to care for your safety and well-being at this time. And if that includes stopping at this point, we encourage you to do so. So we, I, so my, my father was an alcoholic and he, um, sexually abused most of the children. So my mom's older kids, me, my older sister, Angie, he did not with my youngest sister, but I don't know when they were separated and when my mom got pregnant, if there was some controversy over whether or not it was his, I mean, it's fully his child, but he just treated her so badly her um, abuse was uh, was physical, more mental, I guess, 
where he, he would smack her sometimes or just verbally break her down. But the other Angie and I, he was, uh, more, he, I mean, I, he molested us. And so the last time I saw my father, I was eight years old and he, uh, told me that the next time I came over, he was going to teach me all about sex. And I knew that I could never go back. So I was eight years old. I told my mom what happened and I never wanted to go back. I could never see him again. The next time I saw him, I knew he was going to do terrible things way worse than he'd already done. And, um, I remember her calling him and yelling and cussing and screaming. Uh, and all of us hunkered down in the room together, the three young ones just crying. And then I don't have a good recollection of the time span, but the next time I saw him was on the television when my mom said, Oh, look, your dad's in his orange jumpsuit going to prison. And that's my mom turned that on for us to see. That's the the last time I saw this on TV. When, when you told your mom that was that the first disclosure, that's the first time I had disclosed it. So for me, so he had done far worse things to my sister, Angie, and she and I talked about it after I told my mom, she never talked to me about it before then he told her that he would kill her and he had a gun and he showed my sister the gun. He would kill my mom. He'd kill all of us. He'd kill her if she said anything. So she held it in. So the things that he would do, he would kiss open mouth, inappropriate, sucking on your tongue and lips. Um, he would touch, uh, he would put you on top of him and rub your body against him. And then when the last time I saw him, he actually had pulled his penis out, was like, touch it, hold it. Uh, and thank God somebody interrupted us, came in and said, Hey, we need to go. And he had to put it away really quickly. Um, and that's when he said, Hey, just the next time you see me, I'm going to teach you. And so for me, that was all the further it needed to go before I was going to say something. So that was the first time he had actually exposed himself to me. And I, you know, again, I, yeah, just what do you do with that information? You're eight years old. This is your father. Uh, you definitely don't go back. Well, I think it's, you know, I think so many times we want to think of sexual abuse, molestation, even assault as something so scary and traumatic and other. But like you're saying, how how do you know that's not what dads do with their daughters? I mean, that's the relationship. That's a dynamic. Mm -hmm. How do you know that's inappropriate? How do you know that's not okay? How do you know? And then you have four sisters. No one's saying anything. No one said, oh my God, Sophia, that's not okay, right? No one says anything. It's up to you with your limited knowledge of the world to decipher what's okay and what's what's not okay right and then again all of this you know trauma 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 and then it it seems like for you your way of you know moving through it is okay i'm gonna do i'm gonna to try to control what i can right and i'm going to do everything the right way right like i'm gonna work really hard. I'm going to be in, I'm going to create these scenarios. Like you said, when I'm babysitting where I'm in charge and I'm going to, I'm taking kind of control of things. Yeah. And surely if you make all the right choices and you do all things that you can to be a good kid, surely that's going to, that will pay off and these bad things won't happen to you anymore. 
I mean, that's what your head does. You know, maybe yeah. I need to be a better kid. Maybe I need to, I need to make sure that my mom doesn't yell at me today because if she's, you know, she gets off work and the house is dirty, that's going to be, that's bad. We have to make sure we work really hard to make everything um, nice and tidy and organized and clean so that she doesn't get mad. And so that you can try to uh, escape any opportunity to be harmed. Yeah. Yeah. And then your dad, so, so your mom then like immediately stopped visitation. That was it. Yeah. And then he went to prison, still in prison. He sh- yeah. So he actually, so after we stopped going, he molested his girlfriend's little boy and then um, they got into a confrontation and he shot and killed her. So and he's in yes. life in prison. He's life, life in prison. Yeah. Yeah. Was that surprising to you or looking at it now, is that surprising to you? Well, no. And I think through obviously years of therapy for myself, um, the word forgive, like people used to say, well, do you forgive him? Do you forgive him? And I never really understood the word forgive. Like uh, forgive means to me, forgive means to be at peace with what happened. So I don't ever have to say that, oh, it's fine that he did those things or accept that, you know, he was in a bad place or maybe had mental illness himself, um, but to just be at peace that those things happen. And I don't have to let those things frame who I am at my mm-hmm. core or the things that I do with my life. And I think I loved, I found the quote last year. It's just one of my all time favorite quotes and it is forgiveness is freedom of letting go of all hope of having a better past. So to me, forgiveness is not about the perpetrator of anything, but about my freedom, right? My freedom and me knowing I can't have a better past. It's over. Like my past yeah. is done. You know, and it's like, for me, it's like letting that go, letting the, that go of being able to change that. And that's freedom for me. So I like that because it's for me, like my forgiveness is for me. It's not for, you know, the perpetrator of, of the, the yeah. wrongdoer. I like and, that. and you, you've taught, you talked just now a little bit about your journey of therapy and Kelly and I have talked about, you know, our journey of therapy. And I love Kelly identifies spirituality or spiritual journey as doing the work right? Doing the work. And we talked about that. What's the work? The work is therapy, uh, reading a book, listening to podcasts, talking to other people, having a life coach, you know, whatever that is. What, what's the work for you? Yeah, I would say all of those things, uh, like you've just stated. And, um, you know, even with your physical health, your mental health, you know, that overlap. But um, what's crazy is the timing of when my breast cancer diagnosis came. So, doing the work, seeing a therapist, doing EMDR, um, really trying to work through um, the therapist I saw did a lot of internal family systems work um, or parts work. And for me, being able to identify that those, those parts of me that I'm like, oh man, why is that so controlling? Why is that fear so strong? Um, realizing that, oh, that's that little girl that was abused and didn't have um, her footing right. Um, and so recognizing that my core self is still very much here and those parts of me and the coping skills that I developed to help get me to where I'm at, um, I want to just have a better awareness for uh, how they served me and not to 
you know, say that those are bad things or I should have done things different. Um, but that work was, um, I mean, all of it, just, I guess, being well-educated and just having a better awareness, um, how, how you have gotten to where you are from a behavior and emotional capacity. And so the work that I had been doing, we made a major breakthrough, like finally, um, you know, it was like the, the scene from Jerry Maguire where he's like in the car scream singing, I'm free and I'm free, you know, free falling, like that kind of a session where it was like, oh my gosh, I'm finally freed from the burdens of the past. Like, oh, this feels amazing. And for me, um, I have a friend at work who does, she's a, a Reiki master. And so when we talk about our chakras and our energy and self-love is here in your chest, like having that self-worth and that love. Um, and for me, not getting that as a kid, not thinking that I was good enough and making all these bad choices uh, that led to being treated the way that I was um, doing that work, having that session, and then just feeling like, oh my gosh, I see myself for who I am at my core, not for the things that I've done um, to overcome or to cope or to compensate. And it was within about a month and a half of that session that I found the lamp. So it's just pretty remarkable how it all happens like that. Any books that were life-changing on this journey? Any podcasts? Ah, uh, yes. So uh, when you say do the work, there's, I think it's Nicole per- LePeron maybe is the name of the author who her book is called Doing the Work. Um, there was the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to butcher it. I know the internal family system and there's a book all around it. Peter Levine. Um, there's, uh, he's the one who I learned fawning as a coping skill. You know, we learned freeze and flight and fight, um, but fawning and how we take care of everyone else. I mean, obviously when I was babysitting at age nine, I was fawning. I was giving a love to these little beings. And that was a major coping skill for me. Um, the uh, somatic experiencing, there's a, a lot of literature on that. Um, yeah. Tim Ferriss podcast. I mean, there's just, yeah, there's a lot of I wish I could remember just to recall all of it, but yeah, there's been a lot of support. And so it sounds like you also, so, so you read a lot of uh, books that supported the interventions that your clinician was using, but then also some energy healing. I mean, I love, oh, I love me some Reiki. I love some energy healing. Yeah. And I had never done a Reiki session. I didn't know anything about it. She, um, as a Reiki master would say, Hey, if you ever want Reiki, let me know. But you know, when I had my diagnoses and I was just, there was like a series, we'll call it a series of unfortunate events. Like the first pathology report came back where it was, um, DCIS. So ductal, uh, carcinoma in situ, meaning that it was all the cancer was contained inside the duct. And we were like, oh, thank God, like, that's awesome. And then the MRI showed that actually the whole breast was filled. And then when we got the final pathology from the mastectomy, it was like, man, it was almost in the skin, like a 0.2 millimeter clearance uh, margin. So in all these little things and all through that journey, just her awareness of where I was 
not my mood, but my, she'd your, my energy, like mm-hmm. she would, she would call it out and she'd call it for what it was like, Hey, you seem this. And I would say, that's very much true. I am that. <laughs> and, um, she helped me with, uh, focusing on some of those, uh, big steps that were unsteady through that whole process, starting chemo. Um, when I had my mastectomy, I had a complication there was a bleed. I had a big hematoma. My blood pressure um, was dropping. They were pumping me full of fluid. I was trying to tell them something wasn't right. The nurses weren't really listening. Uh, they were more worried about all the fluid I had without going to the bathroom. So got me up to go to the bathroom, left me unattended on a bedside commode, fell, got a concussion, oh, split right. my face oh my open, uh, t- like 20 stitches oh across my, my forehead. I mean, it was just like all these things. But when she would come to me and say, Hey, you need to surround yourself with light and love and giving me this visual imagery. So as all these bad things were happening, I could protect myself and my energy field so that it didn't take away my hope and my ability to heal and overcome. So that warm white light analogy, I use all the time, like wrap yourself in warm white light or warm bright light. Um, so just focusing on the brightness and the joy instead of getting lost in all the bad things. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, Jess and I do, we're doing Reiki meditation, um, chakra healing, um, yeah. zoom via zoom. Yeah. And we randomly both of you ladies, just so you know, I, I fell into, I'm a level one Reiki healer. <laughs> <laughs> It just kind of fell fell into it. I was going to Reiki and they were doing a training, you know, and I'm like, sure, why not? And um, Kelly let me tap into her chakras one time, which was, which was really cool. But um, I don't think I'm, I am indisciplined enough yet to do that for others. Right. Cause I need you, I need to care for my energies and all of the things uh, in, in order to right allow others so, so my understanding of, of, of a breaky healing, right, is that there's energy everywhere and you're just kind of a vessel. So I'm not, a Reiki healer isn't healing you, right? They're allowing energy to flow through them to flow into you for you to heal yourself. And so, so for me, I think about it, I don't know what, like a, a straw or a pipe. And so if I'm not doing the things and allowing things to flow through clearly, right, then I wouldn't, you know think I was doing my best by healing others if I wasn't doing that work myself so I need to be a little more disciplined in, in my daily practices and my meditation but but yeah so but, but you're right like finding those I think about it like your toolbox right mm-hmm. and all of the things that you need in your toolbox and your kit to be the best version of yourself to be you know the best nurse the best employee the best wife the best mom best daughter right and finding out uh what those are which includes for you like you're saying the energy healing and doing the work well said Jess. well and i think also this shifting in what that means with being the best whereas before i used to strive for perfection and you can't be amazing in all those realms of your life but you can do the best that you can with what you have and shifting your focus onto that and appreciating that your best at any given moment is fluid it changes and have some grace for yourself and where you're at um and awareness right don't be blind to it tap into it when you see or feel those things 
explore them with curiosity. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not fear. Absolutely. And Kelly and I, and I, I think a lot of people, right. Cause Kelly and I love Brene Brown and um, you know, from her, we've learned there is strength in vulnerability. It's the ultimate form of courage. And we want to thank you, Sophia Lyon, for being courageous and sharing your journey with us yeah, today. Sophia. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to follow us on chasingbrighter.com or on YouTube at Chasing Brighter or on Instagram at Chasing Brighter.